0: Shalom, shalom. You're listening to Live Internet Studies. This is episode number 225. My name is Ben Lyman Hanavi. Let's open with a word of prayer. Avinu. our father our king lord here we are like so many other weeks before meeting together with one another with the goal of studying your words and preparing our minds and our hearts to not only worship you lord via this particular medium but to better equip ourselves to understand the nature of the topics that we're engaged in whether it be the um eschatology study that takes place first or um, the apologetics that takes place in the second part of the study. Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit would activate the words that we're going to be reading and uh, help us to have a better understanding. What we would say is increase our capacity to to, um, comprehend and to apply the words. Um, We want to be pleasing to you. We want to live lives that are exemplary in your sight. And we want to be vessels that are usable for your kingdom we want to be in places where we can witness to other people and share our testimony and so we can bring sinners to repentance and and allow your name to be glorified also um just fellowshipping with one another is, is such a blessing uh and we know that it's necessary in these last and evil days as as evil continues to mature in these last days we must recognize that righteousness also must mature as the wheat and the tares were growing up together we can't lose our, um, our sense of who we are in God. And so we must, we must, we must make the Bible part of our, of our regular uh, input uh, so that we can allow the Holy Spirit to use those words to um, strengthen us and to keep us safe. So thank you for this opportunity that's presented before me. I pray that you'll take the words that I studied this week and bring them to my recollection. Help me to be able to present something that's um uh something that makes sense something that has some um a sense of 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 understanding that people can can grasp and so um uh they can walk away and go okay i i can run with that Thank you for uh, the students who join me week after week in the live studies. Lord, what a blessing to be able to engage uh, in the material with them, listening to the insights that they bring to the discussion and growing on those particular topics as well. I know I don't have all the answers, and I'm sure they don't either, so that's why it's such a blessing to be able to share in the interaction with one another as we sharpen one another like iron sharpens iron. We'll be careful, Lord, to give you the praise and glory of Yeshua. Amen. These are the Live Internet Studies. My name is Aruban lyman Hanavi. This is episode number 225 and the first segment is entitled Eschatology a Biblical Study of End Time Events. We are talking about topic number 7 Excursus the Islamic Antichrist per Joel Richardson. This is not an exposé on Islam. I want to make sure you understand my intent of dealing with the material at hand. The Bible describes Satan and the different earthly kingdoms that Satan has utilized down through history, down through mankind's history, to try and thwart God's plans of establishing his kingdom here on earth through his agents, through his leaders, through God's people. And so Satan, who... As far as i can tell doesn't know um all of history like god does but nevertheless has a measured has a higher intelligence than most humans satan has decided to step in and throw a monkey wrench into god's plans starting with the fall in the garden and the temptation of our first parents but going from there satan has decided to try and thwart god's plans at every step whether it's to um, murder the uh, Messiah that God would send, right, that God promised throughout the, all of the uh, uh, the Tanakh, the Old Testament, Satan tried to uh, destroy that line, knowing that he would come from the lineage of a certain man, Abraham. And of course, we're talking about the the introduction of Israel and Jewish people. Satan sought then to uh, bring in uh, kingdoms and utilize their. Um, disbelief in god and their wickedness to his advantage so we're talking about islam to the degree that there is every possibility that satan will once again decide to utilize a religion that is other than christianity to um disrupt god's plans and to bring about um pain and and persecution of god's people and confusion on planet earth so we're not trying to say that islam is the big bad evil we're not trying to say that muslims are bad people or that um that they're all lost and going to hell or something that affects so don't don't misunderstand any things that i'm talking about we're just talking about a bible topic of the antichrist to the degree that Islam has an eschatology that, that overlaps with biblical eschatology, end-time events, and the very strong probability that Islam will be a key player in the end-time scenario when we're talking about Israel in the Middle East and the um uh incursions that are going to happen against israel and her neighbors who's going to be um, on the table of, of, um, of discussion of you know israel battling who and if you look at the middle east map today israel is surrounded by muslim arab Countries, neighbors, uh, people groups. Um, so the religion is Islam there, predominantly in, in that part of the world, and the people groups are predominantly um, either uh, Arabic or other nationalities that are non-Western, non-European, uh, non—you know—fill in the blank. So that's why we're looking at these particular topics. So. You see on your screen now, topics have excurses Islamic Antichrist. Last week, I whet your appetite with my own kind of overview of the parallels and contrasts between the three major what are called signs by Islamic um, uh, uh, teachers, Islamic specialists, um, people who do these types of studies. These three signs or three um, figures, figures—they they're called, they're called signs, but that are expected by um, um uh Muslims uh uh thinkers are uh the Islamic Mahdi or you can say Mahdi and then we have the Muslim Jesus Isa uh and then we have the Dajjal. And so of those three figures we learned last week that two of those figures are considered by uh Islamic teachers as um good guys in the story. I remember I He gave us a kind of humorous analogy of uh, Batman and Robin, right? The dynamic duo. They are good guys. They're heroes. They're superheroes. And yet one is clearly in higher rank than the other. Batman is higher in rank in in the comics than Robin is. Robin is the junior. Robin is his sidekick it 's really all about Batman, and then Robin comes along as a as an assistant well that 's kind of the same thing. The Mahdi is the Batman. fill in in my analogy he 's the primary player, and the Muslim Jesus isa is his sidekick is the one who assists him in doing his uh, his duty and so they 're the good guys and then in the Islamic eschatology, the Dajjal. Is the bad guy? He's the Joker of the story. He's the the villain of the piece. The um the um antagonist. He's the one that comes along and fights against the superheroes. And even in Islamic uh, eschatology, the good guys win, right? They defeat the bad guy. So, uh, just like in the comic books, the Joker ends up getting defeated by Batman and Robin, but not without some like some battles and some struggles and some 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 bloodshed. So, when we look at the parallels between Islamic eschatology and the parallels to biblical figures we've got the antichrist we've got the false prophet and then we've got yeshua himself of course in biblical fashion the antichrist is also uh has his uh what we call um sidekick false prophet but in the biblical narrative the the um purposes are are reversed right the antichrist and the false prophet are bad guys they're villains of the peace they're um, figures that show up on the scene that seek to do harm and destruction to planet earth and ultimately they have a measured amount of success in doing that they're going to over they're going to wear out the saints they're going to lay siege to jerusalem um, you know they're going to impose the mark of the beast and and um, a lot of bloodshed is going to happen as a result of these two figures in the bible but then similar to islamic story there's a good guy who comes along jesus christ himself he's the champion, right? He's the he's God's um uh main player in the story, and he comes along and liberates planet earth from the bad guys, right? He defeats the, the bad guys, they get kicked out of the ring, right? Jesus is declared the champion, right? So, um, it's interesting that Satan uses the narrative that of these players in the Islamic model, the eschatology, as um. To us, as Christians, he would use them as what we might call um, a counterfeit version. So, I've heard other, other teachers say it this way. The Islamic Savior is the biblical Antichrist. So you understand how that was working out? So there's kind of a one-to-one correlation there between those figures. So we looked at that last week and go back and listen to my uh, last week's study if you're confused. What we're gonna do now is begin to transition into the book that the gentleman on the screen that you can see on the screen right now, Joel Richardson himself, Literally wrote the book. Let me just show you the book. Here's a screenshot of uh, of uh, Amazon.com. It's called The Islamic Antichrist by Joel Richardson. He's a Christian author, and he put the book uh, together uh, some time ago. And it's a I've read the book myself, and um, you can buy it from Amazon. There, it's not too terribly expensive. If you want to support uh, Mr. Richardson's ministry, then here's a way to pick up the book and do that. But uh, Joel Richardson is so gracious that he has made this resource available for free, and there's a few ways you can get to it. As I mentioned last week, you can go to his website at joelstrumpet.com, and I put this link in the um, video link in the description below. You can see a link to this uh, to these as well, you can, as well as the, um, the uh, Amazon uh, link as well, the book there. But if you go to his website and click on the free resources link and begin to scroll down, you can see right away there... The Islamic Antichrist shows up right there, and um, it shows up in many, many languages. So, uh, feel free to avail yourself of those free resources that uh, Joel has made available for us. Likewise, there is a web resource ministry known as um, Answering Islam. And uh, I think it's answeringislam.org, yes. And from there the various there are various teachers who contribute to the different resources and one of those contributing authors is Joel Richardson again and he has taken his book and put it turned it into web version so it's not a pdf document or anything like that it's html standard web page and you can click on the book and read it right there online for free before we jump into the book let me just again remind you of the other resources <clears throat> that I myself I'm interacting with. I put these links in my video, in my description of the video below, and then we'll jump into the study. But along with uh, Mister Richardson, um, a helpful resource that I myself can recommend is uh, uh, Pastor Christian Pastor uh, John MacArthur. He has a sermon on this same topic about. The um, last day scenario involving Islam and uh, a Muslim presence uh, in the earth and how Christianity has to contend with the fact that Islam is the fastest growing religion on earth. And and by, by, by even the estimates of many um, specialists in this area, perhaps maybe in as little as 20 years, Islam may be the top religion in the world the majority religion in the world today having a very strong presence in many, many countries, including Western countries, not just the Middle East. But um, that's something that every Christian should take notice of. So, based on that reality, you can give um, um, Pastor John MacArthur a listener, you can watch the video, you can play the audio, or you can just read the uh transcript of the sermon there in its entirety right there. Again, a free re- resource, which is great. Fits everybody's budget. Another... um Another resource that I would point you in the direction of is Zion's Hope, a Christian ministry with a messianic outlook, as you can hear it in their name, Zion's Hope, very pro-Israel in that uh, regard, and they have um, a a lot of resources in regards to this area as well. If you go to their um, YouTube channel, youtube.com forward slash at zionshope.org, Hope.org. then, and you begin to scroll down, if you look for, either through the videos or the playlists, or use the search option, you can see, let me kind of zoom in a little bit there, you can see they've got uh, videos on this particular topic, Islam, Islamic eschatology, uh, Islamic antichrist, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. and then moving into that same um, uh, area of prophecy, dealing with uh, Islam's um, place in the end time i mentioned last week uh my own favorite personal favorite tim Hag at torresource.com has a study on the book of daniel that you can purchase uh by way of audio and video and he also brings up this topic about how that islam is a very real possibility and probability of an end time major player and then lastly but certainly not leastly Is that how it really works? Lastly, but not leastly? No, I think it's last, but not least. I have my own um, good friend uh, and partner in crime, uh, Rabbi Ed of Beth El Gibor. Let me zoom in there as well. Um, He has a um, video that he put out fairly recently within the last two weeks called Uh, Radar Apologetics on Air. Radar Apologetics is the name of his YouTube channel. Antichrist in Islam. The first 20 minutes of that hour and a half long study is given over to this particular topic. So uh, find him on YouTube. Uh, Look up Radar Apologetics or Rabbi Ed. Uh, You can find it either way. But uh, I recommend it. And again, all of these links are in the description below. So, having said all of that, let's jump now into our study. We're going to be using Mr. Richardson's material here from this point forward, for the next few weeks at least. Let's begin to look at his notes. I want to start, actually, rather than jumping into the chapter, which I'm going to be utilizing, which is, I think, chapter 5 of his book, I want to start by reading part of the conclusion of either, I think it's either the introduction or it might be the first chapter. And the topic was, um, let me just scroll up real quick, and you see, it is chapter 1. Why this book, Waking Up to the Islamic Revival? So, why would we even have this particular study? What is its relevancy to Christians? And as I mentioned earlier, let me scroll back to where I was, as I mentioned um, earlier, I don't want you to mistakenly think that this is a study on Islam or a study on Muslim eschatology per se. This is not an expose on Islam for the purpose of showing how evil and twisted their religion is or or uh, expressing my sentiments of how bad Muslims are as a people or anything like that. None of that is factual, okay? Don't misunderstand why I'm giving this particular Um, outlook on this particular topic. It's because of eschatology that I'm bringing this up. It's because of our discussion on Antichrist and the model of of Antichrist is seen through the lens of Islam and how there is a very strong possibility slash probability that Islam could be that uh, final beast empire that Satan utilizes to make his last ditch effort to thwart God's plans here on planet earth. Remember, we've already had in this order Egypt, Assyria, Medo-Persia, I'm sorry, Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, and then in the church age after Rome in the gap, we have some possibilities of who that could have been. It could have been... The Ottoman Empire, which of course where Islam came from, could have been the Russian Federation before they broke up, could have been the Nazi regime under led by Hitler himself, um, or uh, you know, any other number of different um players of who that seventh beats empire, but the eighth we know will be um almost like a composite of all the previous seven. Indeed, the book of Revelation talks about how that the 8th beast is of the 7, yet he himself is an 8th. So it is definitely almost like a combination of these final empires all uh, consummated uh, under one final wicked, ruler, wicked uh, world system that's going to uh, have an impact around the world, just like all the other seven did in some way, shape, or form. So, let's look at Mr. Richardson's notes. This is a conclusion to chapter 1. Let's see how this is relevant to us as um, Christians. Uh, So, we'll start right here, as you can see on your screen. Uh, Joel writes, So, maybe you now agree that it is important to become informed regarding Islam, but you may be wondering why it is important to understand Islamic eschatology specifically. Again, otherwise, I myself also, I'm not really interested in Islam. I don't have any I don't have any reason to discuss Islam on my YouTube channel or or anything like that. I don't have any. I don't have any personal beef against them. I don't have any um, reason to to slam their religion and throw them under a bus. Obviously, I differ with their theology. Right? Uh, there are many. Um, aspects of their religion that are contrary to the biblical worldview uh and my understanding as a, as a messianic jewish man who believes in the trinity so yeah we have our strong differences but other than that they're just good loving people who want to live their lives peaceably most of uh muslims that i know i don't know any personally um that i can think of off the top of my head i've met a few but um um uh, And as I was discussing with my friend in the um, chat room before, in the Skype room before we started the study, uh, Islam represents a mission field to us as Christians, right? If we understand that their religion is not the actual true biblical religion, even though they say it is, then to us we realize that they are simply people who are in need of a Savior, just like we were before we found Christ. We need to be um, ready and willing to witness to them as well, as difficult as that might seem to us. So let's keep reading um, Joel Richardson. He says, It's a good question, right? Why should I study uh, Islamic eschatology specifically? He says, Please think through some of these points carefully. Let me see if I can read this without um, pausing. The Bible makes it clear that the devil's primary plan for the last days has been for the past few thousand years to raise up two men, the Antichrist and the False Prophet. And indeed, those are the two major plays that I mentioned earlier in both eschatology um families or eschatology uh, uh, um, groups both islam and christianity and so we got these two men and he raised satan uses them as his primary instruments to deceive the inhabitants of the earth so, with this um uh, in view uh Joel continues. he says, "So, how do you suppose that Satan has planned to include the world's one point three billion Muslims in his grand end time deception I've read a few different possibilities myself." Um, let me see what Joel has to say and then I'll offer my own um, suggestions if he doesn't mention the ones that I myself have met, heard. Uh, Joel says, did Satan fail to foresee and strategize regarding the global spread of Islam? Of course, he's asking these rhetorical questions. He knows the, his answer himself. Or has Satan included the Muslims of the world in his end time strategy? He asks this question, will Islam the world's third monotheistic religion? Remember there's three Abrahamic religions, monotheistic religions, Christianity, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. Will Islam, the world's third monotheistic religion, also undergo the persecution of Satan, along with Christians and Jews, as they all resist the Antichrist together, or he says, "Will Islam the religion that prides itself in resisting any form of idolatry right Resistance is futile um, resisting any form of idolatry, simply submit." to a demonic and false religious leader without putting up any real fight so he asks some questions again he has his own answers i've heard some bible prophecy teachers postulate that perhaps when Antichrist, who comes up out of a European model, for those uh, the pastors that I'm uh, referencing right now, um, instead of being an Antichrist who comes up out of an Islamic model, if he comes out of, out of a European model and puts forth some one world religion that turns out not to be Islam, well then um, uh, Muslims and Islam the world over they somehow have to either be taken out of the way, defeated uh, at a Gog and Magog battle, or prior to that, or something to that effect, but. Trends don't seem to um, kind of conform to that outlook that Islam is going away anytime soon. In fact, it's the opposite. Islam is growing in strength and in numbers and in pre- and, uh, preeminence in the world today. And like I said earlier, um, by many estimates, in as short as maybe 20 years, uh, it will overtake Christianity as the dominant religion in the earth today Um in, in many cases. So, let's keep reading Joel Richardson. For years, he says, I questioned the Lord about these particular issues. In time, as my knowledge of Islam deepened, the answers to my questions became very clear. This book, he says, is my attempt to share with you what I have learned. So, we're reading through the um, conclusion to uh, chapter one of this particular book, The Islamic Antichrist by Joel Richardson. He continues, I understand that this This may sound like a strong statement to make but i believe that the information presented in this book will establish the fact that islam is indeed the primary vehicle that will be used by satan to fulfill the prophecies of the bible And we're talking about prophecies that primarily uh, talk about Antichrist and the the final beast. But fulfill the prophecy of the Bible about the future political-slash-religious-slash-military system of the Antichrist that will overwhelm the entire world just prior to... second coming of jesus christ so that's his take that's the introduction that's the conclusion to chapter one of his book we're going to turn now to chapter five and start looking at um uh the islamic antichrist in more in more detail um and as i mentioned to the degree that if you're listening to this um audio file, this mp3 file, this podcast, and or you're watching the YouTube video, or you're just doing the study in some other fashion along with my own notes, or you're doing your own studies using other resources like some of the ones that I mentioned earlier, you owe it to yourself to consider the very strong possibility slash probability that as a Christian, you might not simply be whisked away and raptured away before many of these events begin to uh, unfold before our very eyes. There are many pieces that are already in place that would um, allow for some world ruler to step on the scene to begin to create a, a semblance of peace in the Middle East between Israel and her neighbors, so much so to the point that uh, this facilitates a third temple, or, well, an interim temple being rebuilt Um the sacrifices being reinstituted and then within that scenario we can have the antichrist taking off his mask at the, uh, the midpoint or a few years into that contract with israel to begin his um, um, campaign of, of, of the of, really overtaking Jerusalem as his headquarters, um, besieging it, um, murdering uh, Jewish people and anyone who would uh, oppose him. And thus, we can begin to realize that if we're around during those events, then wow, we didn't get raptured away before the tribulation began because, hello, we're right in the middle of it. So, do yourself a favor and be prepared either way. Oh, what I love that pre-tribulational rapturism would be accurate? I mean, that God just snatches us away before any of the bad stuff happens. I don't even have to see antichrist. Christ or uh, understand uh, any of his um um targeted tribulation against Jews and Christians. I mean, my heart goes out to those folks who will be stuck here if I and myself are, am, am, am taken out of the picture, but the point I'm trying to make, and you can tell, is that what if I'm wrong, and that the rapture takes place a little bit later into the tribulation and into the seven-year period, right? What if, what if mid-trip is right? What if, what if post-trip is right? Or what if pre-wrath is right, the position I hold to? Alright, having said that, let's turn to Um, Let's find it here. Let me scroll down to the index of the book, and uh, find the chapter I want to look at. So, the notes that we're going to be using are borrowed from chapter 5, comparing the Biblical Antichrist and the Mahdi. So this is the chapter that we're going to be looking at. Um, The other chapters of the book, again, you're certainly welcome to read them on your own, but I'm not going to be dealing with them here in this particular study. So this is the part where we have the one-to-one correlation between the biblical Antichrist and the Islamic Mahdi, where there's a one-to-one correlation between these two figures. And again, the irony is that... um, According to Islam, their champion, their, their main primary good guy that they're going to be welcoming with open arms is what the Bible describes as the Antichrist, the very person who is the one who's going to deceive um, humanity, the primary tool that Satan's going to be using, the puppet, the minion that Satan's going to be using as his primary um, figure, the one that John calls the beast, the one that the Old Testament calls the little horn or the um, the man of lawlessness that Paul described in Thessalonians. He goes by many other names in the Old Testament as well, Gog and um, the son of destruction and things like that. So, let's read about this person, the Antichrist, as seen through the lens of Islam. Again, most Muslims don't see him as a bad guy. They see the Mahdi as a good guy. So this is why it becomes all the more relevant and important for us as Christians as we're going to maybe find ourselves um, witnessing to Muslims or ministering to them to help to get them to see that their own eschatology story contains a primary figure that they're going to be welcoming, but that may in fact turn out to be Satan incarnate in all practical purposes. I'm mean, that's, that's cause for alarm right there. Let's read Joel Richardson's notes. He has to say this. Most people who haven't even read the Bible have heard of the man known popularly as the Antichrist. And again, we're talking about a figure in eschatology circles who goes by the name of the Mahdi or the Twelfth imam or something to that effect so they're not going to call him the antichrist and they're certainly not going to think he's the bad guy and i don't think they're reading the the bible and realizing that what the bible describes as the antichrist is truly their um their messiah type figure i i don't think if if they had that Inclination as Muslims, I think they would probably begin to simply either just throw the Bible out and say, "Well, the Bible's wrong. That's that's that that's not the word of Allah, right? That's not what what uh, Muhammad predicted was really going to be happening. That's not Hadith or anything." So they would probably just reject the Bible as being false at that at that stage. But the alarm for us as Christians is that since we do hold the Bible to be true, this means that they that that those Muslims are whether they know it or not whether they're innocent or not in their understanding of the bible or simply um outright opposed to it they are setting themselves up in a position where they are going to be deceived and it's going to be detrimental to their very soul let's keep reading joel richardson simply put he says according to the bible the antichrist will be satan's primary human agent on the earth in the last days as we already looked at through um Uh, using the book The Sign, which I'll still use later on in the future, so don't think that I'm done with it. But we looked at Christian author um, uh, Robert Van Campen's model of the Antichrist previously, and his is primarily what I described as more of a European-looking Antichrist, as I understand uh, the way he described in the book. He doesn't have any Islamic... Um, perspective that he brought to the discussion if I remember I've read the book two or three times and I don't I don't recall reading anything in there about a heavy Islamic presence he does mention um, the fact that Islam is one of the major players at the end of the day I think all true Bible prophecy teachers have to recognize that Islam is a major player on the chessboard the the the, the difference between um, many of these two discussions is how important they factor in to the discussion, but Joel Richards is going to put forth a um, a theory or hypothesis or a position, a model that again might be new to many of you. Some of you write into me and, and leave comments on my YouTube videos or telling me I've never heard this before, Ariel. Where are you? Pu- why are you pulling this out of left field? Ah, I'm not. All right, this is not something that's. Being pulled out of left field, which is why I've mentioned some of the other teachers uh, that are already teaching this material. I myself am a little bit new to it. I, admittedly, I'm new to the game as well. So don't be embarrassed if you've never heard this. I just picked up on this this year, right, 2023. So I myself am already new to it, even though I taught eschatology studies 20 years ago. Back then, I was not even considering that Islam was in this position of being maybe the uh, one of maybe the eighth beast empire. Well, let's keep reading. Joel Richardson says, interestingly. In the Bible, the Antichrist is actually only referred to once by that specific name, 1 John 2.18. Using other names, however, there are numerous references to the Antichrist found throughout the Bible. Notice that in this chapter that we're borrowing from uh, Joel Richardson's book, The Islamic Antichrist, the first several paragraphs are simply given over to explaining Antichrist from the biblical perspective. So, this is kind of like a complimentary um, uh, excursus study to my part, uh, topic number seven, where we looked at Antichrist per uh, Robert Van Campen. So, let's keep reading uh, Joel Richardson. He says, Some of the various names that Scripture signs to the Antichrist are we have the and I mentioned this earlier we have the beast in Revelation 13:14 we have the abomination that causes desolation Matthew 24:15 uh, which is also borrowed uh, or shows up in the book of uh, Daniel a few different times we have the desolator in Daniel 9:27 or, or the abomination of desolation as some translations show it that way we have the man of sin and the man of lawlessness the son of destruction Second Thessalonians chapter 2. We have the little horn from Daniel chapter 7. We have the Assyrian from Micah 5, Isaiah 10, and uh, Isaiah 14. Uh, Moving right along, we also have the oppressor, the king of Babylon from Isaiah 14. And we have the mysterious Gog in Ezekiel 38 and Revelation 20, verse 7. And what we can see here is... Uh, as I interject, is that this figure plays prominently in the Bible. He shows up in a lot of different places by a few different names, but the one that that sticks most easily in our minds is the label Antichrist. That's the one that kind of rises to the top. But I don't want you to think that this is a figure that was invented by John the Revelator in the Book of Revelation, or in his uh, in his epistles, First, Second, and Third John. I don't want you to think that he simply was shown this person, this wicked ruler, in his time. It's something that he himself was familiar with from the Old Testament and the Tanakh, right? His his upbringing as a Jewish man, and now God is giving him further revelation uh, so that we also can benefit from this uh, prophecy. And uh, Joel says there are several other names that Scripture uses to refer to the Antichrist as well, and he doesn't mention them here in this particular study. Let's keep reading his book here. Oops, I mean to jump like that. He continues but beyond all of his unusual names speaking of antichrist who exactly is this figure who is the antichrist we always uh begin to postulate you know de- be- depending on which model you kind of hold to european versus a um um and an islamic model um who is the antichrist um you know is he king charles is he? president obama uh, or is he president um bush or is he president uh, trump um we can go a little farther back in history was he some of the other presidents like reagan um who once had an address at that was 666 as i understand reagan used to live at a at a residency that was the address was 666 something something but because of all the kind of the the um, superstitions that Christians carry around that um, number. I think they, they went and changed that once he became the president. But people kind of picked up on that like <gasps> maybe Reagan is the Antichrist because he used to live at a house that's address was 666, right? Um, you know, Gorbachev was considered maybe the antichrist or um uh, maybe it was um Hitler in the past or Mussolini or or um you know, any other kind of ruler who has risen to the political forefront and yet committed crimes or was um you know, looked down upon by people um when we s- switch over into the religious arena uh sometimes people suppose that it could be any number of like popes that could be the antichrist in particular if you 're of the Protestant Reformation background and you have a axe to grind against Catholicism, then the Pope seemed to be the perfect person to be that antichrist um you know, people think that maybe it's Putin or uh, something like that. But going back in history, I'm just jumping all over the place, so don't worry, don't don't mind me. Um, you know, maybe it was one of the, the the Caesars, maybe it was Nero, or maybe it was um, Vespasian, or was it Titus? Or you know, um, you know Nero persecuted the Christians, so maybe he's the Antichrist. Uh, we've also seen obviously Antichrist prototypes and foreshadows uh, in Antiochus Epiphanes and Haman and the Pharaohs and um, anybody who um was uh you know in a position of leadership that that persecuted the people of God. We also see Antichrist figures and types in people who started out as belonging to us as good guys and then either turned their back on us as believers or good guys and became apostates you know um solomon is put forth as a type of antichrist because he he you know he he lost his mind and and did a lot of wicked things um saul king saul uh, who disobeyed god a type of antichrist figure as well um you know was it judas because he's called he shares the same title son of perdition um as the antichrist himself right twice the bible two places where that phrase shows up so The question is, you know, who is the Antichrist? Let's look at uh, Joel Richardson's notes and let him give his own uh, perspective. In this chapter, he says, we will review a few of the primary descriptions and actions that define just who the Antichrist is according to the Bible. I don't believe Joel is going to put his finger on one particular person. If I remember when I read the book... That he's going to simply describe characteristics of the antichrist, like you know his background um, and his political associations and affiliations, his religious um, affiliations, so that we can get kind of get an idea of maybe the um, circumstances that will help us identify who the antichrist is when the time comes, without knowing exactly what his name is or you know exactly we can't point our finger at a fa- and put a face to the the name. Let's continue. Joel says, Our examination will also focus on several very specific similarities between the Antichrist and the Mahdi. And that's where we're going to get the most mileage out of this particular study, which is why I'm bringing it up into my own um, uh, studies here on eschatology. Let's keep reading Joel Richardson from his book, in his, The Islamic Antichrist. This particular section, uh, paragraph is entitled, A Powerful Political and Military World Leader. He writes, from the Bible, we learn that in the uh, last days, the Antichrist will emerge as a man who will lead a very powerful world empire, the likes of which history has yet to produce this powerful leadership role of the antichrist is first described joel says clearly in the bible by the prophet daniel and of course that's why we also went through daniel's notes first in this particular topic i wish we could have done a more deeper dive but we went through um parts specific parts of chapter 2 chapter 7 and chapter 9 and I recommend you go back and read the book of Daniel. I mean, it's a short book, 12 chapters, but go back and read it and pay careful attention to the chapters that I just mentioned. Two, seven, eight, really just go two and then skip over to seven. And then from seven, read to the end of the book. Two, and then seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, and 12. And that's where you're going to begin reading more about the military and political campaigns of this uh, ruler known as Antichrist. So Joel says, in the book of Daniel... In the um, 7th chapter, we find Daniel describing a vision of four very bizarre and gruesome beasts. After describing the first three beasts, Daniel says this of the fourth beast. So, let's read the book of Daniel as... Quoted by Joel Richardson. After that, in my vision at night, this is Daniel speaking, I looked and there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth. It crushed and devoured its victims. And, Daniel says, it trampled underfoot whatever was left. Speaking of this beast, it was different from all the former beasts, and it had ten horns. And so we notice right away as we're reminding ourselves from what Daniel described for us from our own studies that Daniel gives us characteristics of what is described as a beast, but in reality, Daniel is describing two things simultaneously. He's describing a kingdom but he's also describing a king so the phrase beast plays dual roles it plays dual it has dual functions it's both a wicked system right a kingdom a world power but at the same time the word beast describes a human a king a ruler uh some sort of um preeminent figure that factors into uh the world scenario of um kingdoms that are going to exist on the earth and the um key that i want to uh highlight right now before we jump uh keep reading uh, joel richardson's book is um that daniel gives details but not um not all of the details you have to read further prophecies in the old testament as well as Include what is uh, given in the New Testament books, like the book of Thess- uh, I'm sorry, uh, the gospel accounts of the end time scenarios doll of discourse uh, stories as well as paul's writings to the thessalonian church and then lastly but not least um we have the letters uh, penned by paul in uh, i'm sorry uh, penned by peter and then we have john's revelation and in or the revelation of yeshua given to john and well the point that we're going to find out is that the ten horns end up corresponding to the um ten Toes that were previously mentioned in Daniel chapter 2 in the statue, but they also get mentioned again in the book of Revelation as corresponding to this ten-nation coalition that forms the foundation of that final eighth beast empire. So it's not ten beasts, it's one beast with ten horns or uh, a beast that represents this composite of ten nations that that uh, um, work together together For the same purpose, they give their mind. Revelation chapter 17 talks about they give their allegiance to the Antichrist, to the beast, the final uh, ruler of this particular um, uh, world empire that's going to hit the scene. All right, Daniel continues. While I was thinking about the horns, there before me was another horn, a little horn, that's the Antichrist, which came up among them and three of the First horns were uprooted before it so we're talking about a ruler who steps on the scene and he somehow overthrows three horns now if these horns are kingdoms are not or kingdoms but nations or powers political powers or military powers of some sort that are going to exist in the final day then we're talking about um the antichrist subduing three nations or three world powers or three not necessarily world powers i should say maybe just three national powers three countries who have um some form of military might um in the last days and he kind of uses them as his power base later on so he subdues them but in the end the book of revelation says that says that all 10 of them end up giving their allegiance to him they they end up supporting him wholeheartedly they end up uh, backing him Politically militarily um you know in whatever fashion, Daniel says that this particular little horn had eyes like the eyes of a man i e he um he had the skills this has been interpreted as like he had the skills of a man he had the um uh, he had the 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 presence of someone who was um rather um ordinary and perhaps maybe even approachable um but he had a mouth that spoke boastfully. The book of Revelation talks about him having a mouth that that speaks under the authority of the dragon himself, which is Satan. And so we end up realizing that this particular figure is going to have a lot of um a lot of political clout. He's going to have a lot of um of charisma about him. The eyes of a man. Um, maybe he'll even have uh you know attractive features maybe he'll be um someone who when you when we finally see him he won't be kind of gruesome and ugly looking or or you know old and disfigured or something like that he'll look very maybe uh what we might consider today by uh you know have beautiful beautiful uh features you know he's, he's he'll be an attractive man. maybe maybe a tall kind of stately form a sort of a man himself you know you know with, with great hair you know or something like that so uh let's keep reading um we've got probably like about 15 20 minutes left in this particular segment. Let's keep reading Joel Richardson's um chapter out of chapter 5 out of his book of the Islamic Antichrist. Joel says then in verses 5 oh I'm sorry by the way that reference was to Daniel 7 7 through 8. And then Joel continues says then in verses 15 to 16 Daniel asks uh, an angel in his vision to explain the interpretation of the vision of the four beasts and the angel explains that the four beasts represent four very great kingdoms or empires so let's keep reading daniel daniel says i daniel was troubled in spirit and the visions that passed through my mind disturbed me i approached One of those standing there and asked him the true meaning. This is Daniel's words as recorded by Joel Richardson. I asked him the true meaning of all this. So he told me and he gave me the interpretation of these things. And now we begin to read the interpretation. The four beasts are four kingdoms. This is Daniel four kingdoms that will rise from the earth. Daniel 7 15 to 17. And then Joel makes this comment. In his book, he says, it's actually pretty straightforward. Daniel, again, asks the angel specifically about the fourth beasts, and uh, in particular about the little horn that uprooted three horns. And the angel, again, responds with a very direct and clear explanation. So, notice, let's jump back over to Scripture once again. I like it when a writer or a teacher draws heavily from the Bible directly. Way we can begin to realize that he's grounding his theory or his hypothesis in the word of God, even though you may have a different interpretation. At the very least, you have to give him credit for um, putting his explanation right into the words of the Bible itself, uh, primarily. Okay, let's keep reading um, Daniel here. Daniel says, He gave me this explanation, the fourth beast is a fourth kingdom that will appear on the earth it will be different from all the other kingdoms and it will devour the whole earth speaking of this fourth beast it will also uh be seen as trampling it down and crushing it speaking of the whole earth now that could be prophetic hyperbole um does it really mean the whole earth or does it just mean kind of a symbolic representation of whatever means the earth in the day of daniel or whoever is living at the time we'll talk about that later on daniel continues the ten horns are ten kings remember i talked about the ten rulers later on that are going to be mentioned in the book of revelation as well the ten horns are ten kings who will come from this kingdom after them another king will arise Daniel says, who's different from the earlier ones, and he will subdue three kings. And this king who arises afterwards is the Antichrist as well, Daniel 7, 23 and 24. And so, let's let um, Joel explain his own perspective on what we just read from Daniel, rather than me supplying what I think. Uh, Joel Richardson says, essentially, the angel explains that the fourth kingdom will be an empire that will cause great destruction to the whole earth. Initially, this kingdom will consist of ten kings. Then, another king, an eleventh, will arise and will displace three of the previous kings. He continues, This eleventh king is the Antichrist first referred to as the little horn. Joel continues, thus, we see that based on the vision that Daniel was given, the Antichrist is a future king who will first gain control over three other kingdoms or nations, and, speaking of this Antichrist figure, he will eventually uh, gain control over ten, thus forming his future ten-nation beast empire of course we read about these these notes in the book of revelation as well so we know that uh, mr. Richardson's on the right track he continues it will be an empire of unparalleled power and ferocity which will de quote devour the whole earth trampling it down and crushing it in quote and I might interject at this point in time that when Daniel sees the four beasts which correlates one to one to the um metals in the statue that nebuchadnezzar saw in his own dream in daniel chapter 2 we begin to realize that starting with babylon we have babylon medo persia greece and then rome in the four metals of the kingdoms which corresponds to the four beasts that daniel saw in his in his own vision in daniel chapter 7. we begin to realize that the fourth beast itself is indeed peculiar because it forms a type of now and not yet near and far prophetic telescoping type of kingdom which when john began to write about the seven beasts right he went a little bit farther back than daniel he included egypt and assyria in his listing in in um of the seven beasts that have been utilized by satan down through history then we begin to realize that the five that have fallen, the one that is, and one that is yet to come, in John's reckoning in Revelation, chapter 17, and when we correspond that with Daniel here, that we just read, we realize that the fourth beast in Daniel is actually the sixth one in John, because, I'm sorry, the fifth one, because, it's, I'm sorry, the sixth one, I just got it right the first time. Five have fallen, one is. The one that is, is Rome. So when we correlate what Daniel wrote with what John wrote, we realize that the fifth beast, I'm sorry, the sixth beast in Daniel, are. let's try that again, the sixth beast in, in John, John's Revelation writing is the fourth beast in Daniel, and yet at the same time, there's a now and not yet factor to it, that's the point I'm trying to bring up. The fourth beast... What i'm trying to say is indeed the roman empire and yet when we talk about the ten toes or the ten horns and the ten rulers that come out of this fourth beast empire and the fact that it trampled the whole earth and devoured it um rome kind of partially fulfilled some of those details but it didn't exhaust those prophecies so we realize that we can now see that there's a partial fulfillment in daniel and a more a uh, greater, a uh, complete fulfillment that's going to take place at the end of days when there's this revival of the fourth beast. We talk about a revived Roman Empire. Well, when we're talking about the um, European model, then we can see how that the revived Roman Empire would kind of correspond with the European Union, since it's the same kind of geographical footprint that Western Rome occupied during its day of the uh, first century of course when john was writing so that would seem to make sense but we also have to remember that rome had two branches or two major uh parts to their empire there was west and east and the eastern branch of the roman empire lasted a lot longer than the western branch did and in so doing the west the eastern part of rome occupied an area of land that is more Naturally associated t- with today's Turkey and Syria and uh, Israel, the Middle East, there, Lebanon and um, uh, Iraq and going down into uh, Egypt and you know parts of Jordan and even parts of Upper Africa there uh, Libya and and etc cetera, etc cetera. and then even uh, even farther up over little East you know Saudi Arabia parts and and maybe Ara- uh, Iran etc cetera, etc cetera. so the point I'm trying to make is that suddenly when we begin to realize that there's a revived fourth Empire we don't always have to force it into the European model of revived Rome in the West we can realize that when we talk about a revived fourth beast that it could be a revived eastern half of the Roman Empire which actually was more occupied by the Ottoman Turks after they defeated Rome you know a thousand or plus years later so that's the point I'm trying to make is that this actually allows for the prophecy of this fourth beast the revival of the fourth beast it means that what what could take place in the last days and not necessarily a revival of a, of a European-centered um, empire as that final beast, as so much as instead of revival of the eastern side of Rome, meaning a revival of the Ottoman Empire, instead of a revival of the western-slash-Roman Empire and indeed joel's gonna push forth his perspective that that's the case the revival the now and not yet the near and far aspect or the partial slash total uh prophetic telescoping points to the near part being partially fulfilled in ancient rome the western half but the latter half being fulfilled in the eastern half of Rome as it dissolved from the Roman Empire and turned into the Ottoman Empire, but occupying the same land area. So, in other words, the fourth beast uh which formed the legs of nebuchadnezzar's daniel chapter 2 statue went down into the ten toes where the iron began to mix with clay and so it was still the same metal but it introduced some extra elements as it went farther down the statue and became more unstable at the toe stage well that's rome kind of uh, morphing into its uh, final stages or Rome morphing into the Ottoman Empire is what Joel Richardson is going to say. Um, if you don't take that model, then you have to explain how did Rome kind of dissolve and become into the seventh beast. Who was the seventh beast? Was it you know Hitler's um, Nazi regime, which did occupy some of the same land area as Western Rome. So that would kind of put it there. It's the same European stage. uh, So that helps in that particular model. All right, so that's kind of a side rabbit, but it it was worth bringing to your um, uh, discussion. I think what I'll do here is uh, this is a great place to stop with uh mr richardson's notes we'll pick this up next next week where we begin to continue we begin to continue we continue looking at um this book the islamic antichrist and we discuss uh the notes on the antichrist as seen through the lens of the islamic model of the parallels between the antichrist in the bible and the mahdi of of um islamic eschatology but that'll do it for eschatology a biblical study of end time events these are the live internet studies brought to you week after week by myself, Ariel Ben-Lyman Hanovi, I'm a torture to your congregation. Katie Latunavada Harvest in uh, Thornton, Colorado. Find us online at grafting.com and join us in, in person for our live Sabbath services. But if you're not able to join us, at least as I mentioned, join us online. And um, you can see the link to the video right there on my screen as well. These uh, live internet studies are a part of my own um, Torah teaching ministry, which parks itself on the web at com. That's T-E-T-Z-E-T-O-R-A-H.com. I'd love to have you join me at my own home uh, personal website there and uh, browse around and take a look through all the uh, commentaries that you see on my screen right now as well. I also have a YouTube channel that I'd be delighted if you uh, popped in and uh, took a look around there as well youtube.com forward slash c forward slash torah ministries if you do hit my website uh my youtube channel there be sure to uh, take notice how to update the uh site essentially daily uploading videos daily make sure then to subscribe hit the bell for notifications leave thumbs up for all the videos that you like um, leave me some comments and questions about things you have um, uh, your own thoughts on and be sure to share the content with your other friends and family members in your social media circles okay just a brief important uh, details if you'd like to join us for our live studies be sure to get access to skype somehow if you're on my website right now um Uh, During the live study and you click on that blue skype link it'll actually open up Skype in your browser And you can just join us right there and we hope you can join us live Because we engage in uh, live Q&A after the study is over opening up the microphones and it's exclusively to the um, uh, live studies uh, that we uh, enjoy engage in that live study uh, Q&A. But if not, um, take one last moment to scroll to the very bottom of my website where you can see some Hebrew writing and the black section down there. And uh, preferably consider partnering with me to take the Torah around the world uh, in this particular format. You can click on the little yellow donate button and um, bless me that way with your uh, financial gifts and contributions. And I'm so uh, blessed to be able to be in a place where I can receive uh, your generous gifts. Uh, Thank you to all of those who have given in the past and are continuing to give. I'm so uh, thrilled to be on the receiving end of of your generosity. And as I always say, be blessed as you seek to be a blessing to others. Let's turn to a Trinitarian response to Biblical Unitarianism. My name is Ariel Ben-Lyman Hanavi. Let's pick up where we left off last week. We're talking about Psalm 110, verse 1, as seen through the lens of the Christian, non-Trinitarian denomination known as Biblical Unitarian, and they have a website at BiblicalUnitarian.com, it's a website about God and His Son, Jesus Christ. And in a nutshell, they don't hold to a Trinitarian model. They believe in God the Father, who is the sole deity in the Bible, and His human Son, Jesus Christ, who was born of His mother Mary, who was brought into the scene and exalted by God, and now sits at the right hand of God, His Father, but He's nevertheless fully human. He is not divine. He's not pre-existent. He's not God incarnate. As far as the Holy Spirit is concerned, they believe that the Holy Spirit is simply another name for God the Father, just a different description of God the Father, or, and or the Holy Spirit is a description of the anointing that God gifts mankind with when he empowers God christians to uh do his work here on earth so that's the we call the spirit of god uh coming into a man it's really just the spirit of of, of the father god so that's their perspective as a trinitarian i have don't completely reject them their perspective wholesale because there are some truths and some not truths or truths and errors or um, truths and half-truths as, as it were to their theology but we're examining Psalm 110 which reads in the NIV the Lord says to my Lord sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet and according to the biblical Unitarian model um, the first Lord mentioned in the Psalm let me jump over to a different reading the first Lord, as you can see on your screen, is capital L, capital O, sorry, let's try that again, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, which nearly every Bible commentary uh, identifies as God the Father. In fact, I, don't, I haven't found any that don't. Um, so, Biblical Unitarian says this is God the Father, this is Yahweh, as we would, we're would we going to see in the Hebrew in a moment. The Lord, Yahweh, says to my Capital L lowercase O R D or in some versions as we're gonna to see tonight is lowercase L O R D all lowercases. So Biblical Unitarian takes the position that the first Lord in all caps is God the Father Yahweh, but that the second Lord with a capital L is the human Messiah, Jesus, but nevertheless he's human. And they base this on the Hebrew, <clears throat> which we're gonna see, shows up as Adoni And this is compared and contrasted to the other similar Hebrew word, Adonai, which also shows up in this verse, down in verse 5. The Lord is at your right hand. And here, the Hebrew for Lord here, even though it's in the English of this Bible, looks identical to the verse 1 rendering with a capital L and lowercase other letters, or D. Nevertheless, the Hebrew is not Adoni according to the Masoretic vowel pointing. It's Adonai, which is a name reserved for God alone. Thus, biblical unitarian puts forth the position that adoni always refers to humans whether they be the messiah jesus or other exalted figures but nevertheless being human like kings or prophets or other people abraham was an adoni to sarah etc so adoni in their position is always a human and adonai is always god so they're going to take this position in their discussion to make this particular psalm be a non-trinitarian passage so we began by reading um my own summary of their position and then we left off last week reading uh wikipedia's article on psalm 110. i want to continue reading um some of their notes let's jump down to the section about the interpretation this talk about Judaism's perspective. I don't want to spend too much time on Wikipedia's article. I'm kind of going through it very quickly so we can jump further into my own um, uh, explanation. But Judaism in the Talmud, in a few places, state that this psalm speaks about Abraham, who was victorious in battle to save his nephew. I'm not bringing these, these different explanations in because I want you to know that biblical Unitarian offers one position. Christianity... I, I, let me say it a different way. Non-Trinitarian offers, uh, uh, non-Trinitarian Christians offer one explanation. Trinitarians offered another explanation. And yet, um, Rabbinic Judaism offers even a third explanation. So, um, when they're talking about who the Lord is, that God is speaking to, the Lord says to my Lord, Judaism says it was Abraham who was victorious in battle to save his nephew Lot and merited priesthood. Um, According to the Avot of Rabbi Natan, the psalm is speaking of the Jewish Messiah in the context of the four craftsmen in Zechariah's vision. Then we have Rashi Gershonides and Rabbi David Kimchi identifying uh, the subject of the psalm as David. So we have a a few different people that are put forth as who this Adoni is. Obviously, in the rabbinic models, Similar to Biblical Unitarian, in case you didn't catch it, the Adoni character is a non-divine character. He's a human figure. And so that's typical of of Judaism, which doesn't embrace a Trinitarian model. As as far as Christianity is concerned, um, Wikipedia has this to say as part of the Messianic tradition of the Old Testament. The psalm is frequently referred to in the New Testament, as I mentioned earlier. Allusions are found in Mark, Luke... Uh, several places, Corinthians, and lots of places in the book of Hebrews that you can see on your screen. And then they go on to talk about how that the um, the Vulgate, which is the Latin text of the psalm, is part of the Latin liturgy for Vespers, and that there are numerous adaptations in sacral music, including by, and then we have a bunch of um, uh, figures that some of those names you're familiar with, and some of them I mentioned earlier as well, but I'm not going to read through all of that, as it's not that uh, particularly relevant to our um, eschatological, I'm sorry, to our um, apologetic discussion of this particular passage. Lastly, in the book, in this um, um, reference from Wikipedia, they talk about the priest-king, uh, the altar of the um, uh Dominican church at, uh, I can't pronounce that name there, in Austria, showing Abraham meeting, Mel, uh, meeting Melchizedek. A second point in which Jewish and Christian interpreters differ is the language in verse 4. Uh, which describes a person who combines the office of kingship and priesthood and this is more along the lines of discussing what's going on in later parts of the psalm as a whole and um, They go on to mention, however, by way of interest, that this could not apply to King David, who was not a priest, a Kohen. However, Rashi explains here that the term Kohen occasionally refers to a ministerial role, as in 2 Samuel 8, 18, quote, and David's sons were Kohenim, ministers of state. Gershonides and Rabbi David Kimhi further state that the term Kohen, which is the Hebrew word for priest, could be applied to a chief ruler. Thus, the prophetic promise you will be a priest forever can be translated as you will be a head and prince of israel referring to david and then spurgeon that famous christian author he rejects this interpretation stating that in ancient israel no one held the offices of king and priest simultaneously however that title can be given to jesus we we trinitarians recognize the apostle and high priest of our profession right that's a, a quote from the book of hebrews the psalm is used in the epistle to the hebrews to justify the award of the title high priest to jesus from scripture and this is what of course of course makes it such a uh, uh, probably a a ubiquitous psalm that's utilized in the new testament is because by the time of the new testament the Apostolic writings the christians that begin to identify yeshua as both the king and priest spoken of in the Tanakh, and therefore the book of Psalms, Psalm 110, became a favorite to be utilized by those writers. And of course, the Holy Spirit is the one who's inspired that. Matthew Henry notes, quote, Melchizedek was a priest upon his throne, Zechariah 6.13, so is Christ king of righteousness, which is what the phrase Melchizedek Means in the Hebrew, King of righteousness. Uh, king of righteousness and King of peace. Jesus fulfills both of those roles, righteousness and peace. Melchizedek had no successor, nor has Christ. His is an unchangeable priesthood end quote from uh, matthew henry all right that'll do it for wikipedia as i mentioned i don't want to spend too much time there let's go back and again look at the verse briefly in the english out of nasb a psalm of david the lord says to my lord sit in my right hand until i make your enemies a foots for your feet the primary clause in question for our study tonight will be the lord says to my lord when we turn over to the corresponding hebrew um we have David means more that's the first uh, clause there a psalm of David and then we have Neum Yahweh ladoni the Lord says to my Lord the first Lord of course N-um, uh, Yahweh Yahweh being God the Father so the capital L O R D says to ladoni says unto my Lord the lowercase case Adonai or Adoni, Ladoni, uh, lowercase l-o-r-d there being the one um, hierarchy lower than God. Yet, we Trinitarians believe that this is a a statement of Yeshua's, um, not his ontological nature, but his economic position within God's uh, ruling right, God the Father rules or is above God the Son hierarchically in the Godhead, but not ontologically. Not in nature is is Jesus lower. He's simply lower in in um, terms of one being Father, one being Son, and the roles and functions that they play uh, within uh, hum- humanity. But the verse continues: "Shave limini ad um, ashit, um and that's the Hebrew rendering, which we're not going to break down any of those Hebrew terms tonight in detail. Um, by way of addition to Hebrew, though, let me scroll down and look at verse 5. The Lord is at your right hand. This um, the word Lord here, when we go over to the Hebrew, it says, Ado. Nai, Adonai Al-Yemincha, right? The Lord is at your right hand. Adonai Al-Yimincha. The Adonai at the right hand here is again God the Father, but the Hebrew doesn't have Yahweh. The tetragram is the name YHVH. Instead, the Hebrew is ADONI. This is compared and contrasted to, as I scroll back up into the verse, this is compared and contrasted to the ADONI of verse 1, right there. In the Hebrew, if you take out the vowel sounds, the consonants that are left behind are identical. Let me show this to you in a chart. We have this particular chart on the right we have adonai pronounced adonai because of the vowel markings the kamats that i have circled there in red but on the left we have adoni pronounced adoni because of the vowel dot the chirik that shows up underneath the letter nun the n letter in the word adoni reading from right to left And so, you can see the comparison and contrast between these two words. If you can, with your eyes, visually remove those two little um, kamats and hirik markings, the vowel markings, then you end up with the same consonantal letters. So the consonants are identical, but the vowel markings are different. So, let's begin to entertain this discussion of this particular passage. The first thing I want to do is just briefly alert you to the fact that, depending on which version of the Bible you carry the bias of the translator is going to reflect whether they believe this might be either a human agent such as a human jesus like biblical unitarian does in their own proprietary kind of revised english version that i'll show you on the screen a little bit or like the trinitarian model versions of bible and believe it or not all not all bibles are trinitarian leaning Some Bibles have kind of a neutral stance where this could be Trinity, this could be non-Trinity, owing to the fact that in the Incarnation, we must realize that Jesus is fully human and fully divine. He's truly human and truly divine. He's 100% human and 100% God. And so, if the Bible gives a human characteristic or quality or detail in in, in the text that uh, you know lets us know that this is definitely human we trinitarians don't have a problem with that because we realize that jesus is also human it's not like wherever, wherever he walked, he was showing off his God powers, right? He wasn't doing everything in a superhuman fashion, like a metahuman might do, right? He looked and appeared human because he was human. He wasn't just um, a phantom of a human. It wasn't um, some form of of a belief, which is heretical, that says it was just a um, um, an appearance of humanity but was not truly human. So, looking at the various interpretations or... Um, Uh, translations before us just quickly I don't want to go through all of them I want you to with your eyes visually um look at the two lords that are represented in the uh, in the text here the second l-o-r-d right there is all lowercase which is similar to the version that the REV that the biblical Unitarian uses which gives us the impression that the second Lord here is not a divine character It's not a divine um, person but i mean is that what niv is telling us we'd have to read their commentary to find out but just just visually um yourself look at the different versions we have the nlt where one version of lord is all caps. capsulars so uh capital l the esv has capital l or and then uh lo- capital l with a lowercase O R D. the brian standard has all caps for the first lord and only the l is capitalized in the second one uh kjv is all caps in the first one Lower, uh, all and um, lower for the other letters, but all caps in the first letter. Uh, that sounds a bit confusing. I apologize. NKJV has the same thing. You guys can see on your screen what I'm talking about. I'm just kind of scrolling through so you can visually make uh, make your own comparisons. Uh, legacy standard Bible actually has Yahweh, which means they're trying to represent the original Hebrew. Yahweh says to my capital L O R D. Amplified Bible has the Lord, and then in parentheses, they're trying to take away the confusion. They're trying to put forth their own um, theology in their translation, which means their bias is like front and center. But at the same time, being an amplified version of the Bible, it at least gives the reader um, what is uh, what appears to be a very accurate representation, at least a representation that I, as a Trinitarian, hold to. The Lord, and then in parentheses, they have Father with a capital F says to my Lord, capital L, lowercase rd, but in the parentheses it says the Messiah, his capital S O N, capital S, lowercase O N, his son. And then he says, sit at my right hand. So I, I like that rendering. Again, it's a paraphrase, it's, it's, it's filling in, you know, the, the word Father and the word the Messiah's son isn't there in the text, but the translation is trying to say, This is the way we understand what the text to be conveying. So we're going to amplify it by inserting our own uh, bias that we believe you as a Trinitarian Christian are going to agree with, which I actually do. Even if I don't use paraphrases as my primary tools. But Christian Standard has um, uh, LORD and LORD there. As you're noticing, most of these versions have the first LORD as all caps because there's, there's virtually no dispute that this is god the father being referred to i mean virtually none american standard has jehovah uh uh, aramaic version has jehovah and lord brenton septuagint has um interesting has the lord says to my lord now we're going to deal with this in time we might even get to some of it tonight but notice the britain translation the both of the lords are identical capital l Lord is O R D. why does the translation do that well, it's because the translation from the Greek into English, done by Sir um, Lancelot, by Brenton here, what is, what's taking place is that, as we're going to see, the original Greek uses two root words that are identical, kudias and kudias. The case is a little different. In other words, what, what is um, represented because of the um, one being subject and one being object and things like that, that comes out being different, as kurias and mu, but the root words are identif- identical. And thus, the English translation, instead of putting one as all caps as L-O-R-D, and the other as only capital L with the lowercase or R-D, it renders both of them identically to prove a point that, by the time of the Septuagint, the word Lord, the word Kudios, had begun to be utilized both for God as well as for human agents who were lords, so that by the time Jesus hit the scene, Christians were calling him Lord, and there was this kind of dual-purpose meaning to the word Lord. It was all, it was at the same time a reference to his deity, because he was very God, but at the same time it was a reference to his humanity as the human king that God had placed at his very right hand. He was the Lord, Jesus was the capital L O R D Lord in deity, but he was also the lowercase or capital L lowercase ORD because he was the Lord Jesus whom God established to sit on the throne. So that's the kind of the mystery of the incarnation as we see it unfolding in the time period of the New Testament. But here in the Septuagint use, uh, which was two centuries before the time of christ we didn't have that incarnation being revealed yet we only had mystery so scrolling down a little bit further again contemporary english lord and lord capital l dewey Rames follows the septuagint rendering with uh, lord lord being identical to one another um otherwise as we kind of finish out uh, scrolling a bit more quickly uh, oops let me stop and highlight the um the jps Tanakh. knock they are basically identical to the theology of biblical Unitarian in the sense that the second Lord is lowercase l-o-r-d and it refers to a human ruler the first Lord of course is all caps all letters being caps because this is God the father Yahweh but the second Lord is a human ruler whether it be David whether it be a priest whether it be a king whether it be the, the Messiah himself nevertheless he's still human it's no secret that rabbinic Judaism takes the position that the Messiah is a human They do not hold to any sort of divine, well, not all of them take that position. There are some in in Judaism that hold to a divine Messiah. But rabbinic Judaism today, for the most part, rejects uh, a deified Messiah, a a, a God-man, an incarnate God, etc. They reject that for the most part, and they um, proffer a human uh messiah which is why the jps 1917 nearly 100 year old no i'm sorry more than 100 year old version of the bible put out by the jewish publication society that's jps renders this psalm as um lowercase l-o-r-d literal standard version has y-h-v-h they actually just put the four tetragrammaton letters there in and then they put lowercase l-o-r-d afterwards um capital i'm sorry capital l and then lowercase l o r d and then you can get again see that many of the other versions n a n a b has capital all caps lord and then lowercase l o r d net bible has something similar and you're probably wondering well if these are christian versions why aren't they rendering the second uh lord with with a capital l well, again, it's because not all Christians are Trinitarian, right? There, are, I'll flash a little screen, um, grab a little screen um, picture to show you a list of many of the non-Trinitarian outfits that are out there. They're Christian, but they're non-Trinitarian. You know, Biblical Unitarian is not alone. Christod- we have Christadelphian, we have um, Iglesia Ni Cristo, we have um, Oneness Pentecostals as well as some of the others that you're seeing on the list, um, Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses fall under the umbrella of Christian, but they're non-Trinitarian as well. And so you see the list there that I've, that's on your screen. Of Those of you in post-production can see it. Luke, I apologize, you can't see it. I'll, I'll be sure to pull your name out in post-production myself. But those in, in the class can't see it. But... Um, the point i'm trying to emphasize is that the different bibles that are utilized by christians throughout the centuries are it reflects the fact that not all christians felt it was necessary to highlight the the deity of the coming messiah in their translations so um that's kind of what you're looking at as i scroll down to look at some of the bibles um that you see here um, and you can go back and read all those on your own. I'm not, I'm not going to do that here in my um, study. I do want to highlight just quickly some of the Hebrew. When I look at the, um, what this is kind of what we call a pony translation or an interlinear, you can see visually on the screen which Hebrew words correspond with what English words. And so I just want to highlight the ones that are um, the most relevant to our study. Uh, Neum. Yahweh said Yahweh, and then we me scroll down and over. Ladoni, to my Lord, or to the Lord of me is how it shows up in the Greek, but Ladoni is the um, Hebrew there, and then to my Lord, uh, to, the, to the Lord who is mine, uh, the first preposition, le, unto, or to, uh, corresponding to that first um letter right there so what i want you visually to see is that this phrase that this word that i just highlighted in the hebrew adoni is identical to adonai Except for the vowel markings and vowel uh pronunciation, everything else is basically identical so jumping over to the Greek like we did briefly last week, but i 'll do it again this week, we can see this is a rendering a tool that I use from a friend of mine um john um uh, how do you how' is his name um Bar- 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 Bar-ush? Bar-ush? uh i can't remember exactly how how you pronounce his last name it looks like Baruch, but it 's not. Um, Barush, Ber, Barash, something like that. Um, but, um, uh, his name, his, uh, translation here represents an English up here above, which has a more kind of a literal, uh, of Yahweh said to my Lord, uh, of course, representing the Hebrew down below, Le David means more in the Um, Yahweh La And then, uh, germane to our interest is the Greek phrase, right? Let me highlight it for you. Right there, apen, ha kurios, to, kurio, mu. In the Greek, the word in red that my mouse has hovered over right now is kurios. That's God the Father, represented in the Hebrew as YHVH, the, the uh, Tetragrammaton name, but showing up in most English Bibles as all caps L-O-R-D. That's kurios there. And then the next uh, word, to, is the in Greek, or to uh to the and then kurio the red word that you can see highlighted right now on my screen is the second lord the one sitting at the right hand of god and if you can see it in the greek as well as hear it in the pronunciation kurios kurio if i were to click on it which i'm not going to the tool would show me that it's the same root word so kurios to kurio mu the mu at the final end is my or me so to the lord of me is how we would smooth out the translation by inserting extra words that don't actually show up in the greek but are there by context um So the Lord said to the Lord of me or to my Lord, whoever the writer is referring to. But you can hear my point is that according to Biblical Unitarian, because it says kudio mu, they're going to make a case that somehow this different rendering, this different case of the Greek kudio mu, when compared to kudios, somehow proves that the writer knew that the first kudios or first. Person, the first figure in the psalm is God, and the second figure is not God. Otherwise, I guess ostensibly, according to Biblical Unitarian, they imagine that the writer to the psalm, which is David David, right? To David Salmas, in this rendering they imagine that David should have written, Curias To kurias, right? Said the Lord to the Lord. Apenha kurias to something to that effect, instead of saying, ho to mu, said, David, said the Lord to the Lord of me. Because why would God say that he has his own God? Why would God say to my God? Are you understanding how biblical Unitarians are trying to offer a, an absurd example that somehow disproves Trinity? This can't be God talking to God, because otherwise it, the Greek would say, God said to God, or God said to himself, sit at my right hand. How can God speak to himself if God if God has another God? Why would it be the God of God? Right? God said to the God of me. Like, let me just fill in my name so you understand what I'm saying. Ariel said to the Ariel of Ariel, right? Ariel said to my Ariel, (laughs) something to that effect. Well, that sounds odd. I mean, am I schizophrenic? Am I bipolar? Am I am I split personality? Why? Am I, why is Ariel talking to Ariel? So why is God talking to God? This is biblical Unitarians um illogical objection or logical objection to an illogical argument or presentation or model of trinity or model of, of representation of god with which they think trinity represents an illogical representation why does god speaking to god the lord said to the lord Kurias says to Kurias. so instead they say the fact that the greek says to kurio mu is proof positive that god is not speaking to god something to that effect. The other Greek rendering only differs in um, maybe the first clause, Salmos to David, instead of um, to David a Salmas or uh, to David Salmas, it, it, it just changes, swapped some of the word around, words around. But the clause in question is identical. Eipen to kurio That one's identical. All right, so um, let's look briefly. We've got some more time. I don't want to spend too much time on the technical part. But I had to spend enough of the time on the technical part because of the way Biblical Trinitarian banks a lot of their explanation. And... and Uh, interpretation on the technical aspect of the fact that the Masoretic family highlights the differences between these two Hebrew words Adoni and Adonai, both in the tradition of the uh, pronunciation, which came first, as well as now let's turn to the vowel markings, which shows up centuries after Christ walked the earth, I believe it was around the 400s in the AD. So, what you have on your screen now are a bunch of dots and dashes. These should look familiar to us because these are the various dots and dashes that show up around the the, the Hebrew consonants letters that are in your Hebrew Bible. And so, the point I'm trying to highlight at this juncture in our study, I don't want to dwell too much on this, is that the Masoretic families of scribes that carried the responsibility of transmitting the written Word of God from generation to generation, and for the most part, they were faithful. I'm not slamming them, throwing them under the bus, saying that you shouldn't trust your Hebrew-transmitted Bible. I'm not saying that. What I'm simply um inserting by way of additional information that biblical unitarian does offer but doesn't seem to explain it in a way that allows for an alternate um explanation to their rejection of trinity what i'm trying to offer to you uh, without hiding without um keeping it under wraps or keeping it behind a curtain like it feels like biblical unitarian is doing even though i'm not accusing them of doing it i don't know because i don't i can't explain their motive i can't um uh define their motive. I can only look at their actions, but I don't know why they're doing what they're doing. But what they don't explain to you is that the tradition that's carried along by the Masoretes, who, who, who um, preserved the Hebrew Bible for us, Christians and Jews, and so we're thankful to them, and we believe it's authoritative, and we believe that it was utilized by God's very Spirit in the transmission of the Bible to humans. We do believe that's true, but there's also an element of you ready for it? Tradition. That's right. Human tradition played a part in the transmission of the original Hebrew. And so, what you're seeing, these little dots and dashes, they were not present in the original Hebrew script. Let me see if I have a trend uh, of representation of this uh, pulled up for you. Go to parallel Hebrew. Yes, I do. So, if you look at Psalm 110 on the screen right now, from the Westminster Leningrad Codex here you can see that there are hebrew consonants as well as the little dots and dashes those little symbols that are above and below and sometimes in between the hebrew consonant of the letters and this is what this was <clears throat> supplied by the masoretic family, the scribal family, that carried this tradition along of how to pronounce these words. But if you look directly below it, where it says Westminster Leningrad Codex, consonants only, or WLC, which stands for Westminster Leningrad Codex, as well as the Aleppo Codex, right? These are two codices that are available for us today when we find ancient Hebrew manuscripts to utilize when... um, creating translations of the bible of course i believe the wlc the westminster version i believe or it might be the Aleppo. i'm I'm, suddenly i'm drawing a blank um one of them represents a more complete uh collection of all of the tanakh versus the other one i can't remember i believe it might be the aleppo at this point in time but nevertheless the point i'm trying to highlight is that when you look at these two codices you don't see any dots and dashes. Why is that? Because this is using this particular um, square script of Hebrew. I'm not talking about Paleo-Hebrew with all the little symbols. I'm talking about the square script that the, that the Jewish people inherited when they were um, exiled to Babylon and came out of Babylon. This square-looking script uh, came out of Babylon with them. So it's kind of developed in Babylon, and then uh, this is the script that stuck. In other words, the Paleo-Hebrew fell out of use, and this square, blocky-looking script uh, became um, the more um, dominant uh, version of Hebrew that was utilized by the Bible writers at, you know, post-exile. And so this script did not originally contain little dots and dashes like it does in the um, representation right up here. And so going back to that other picture all these little dots and dashes were added up to 400 years after jesus and the first century disciples read their bibles from the hebrew and taught uh what they taught utilizing the greek renderings of the bible etc cetera, etc cetera. what's the point the point is that even though their hebrew bibles were written by jews That were inspired by god and sanctioned by the holy spirit and utilized and preserved by the holy spirit nevertheless there's the element of the human scribal tradition of how are the words pronounced and how are they represented on the page with these little dots and dashes 400 years after the first century, and the Apostolic Scripture was written. What's the impact to us today? What's the importance for this study? In case you guys are wondering, why am I highlighting all these facts? The point is that, and I'm drawing our study to a close around this point, point. we'll pick this up next week. The point is that unstated uh, by Biblical Unitarian is the fact that if you're going to bank a lot or all of your theology on the presence of these little dots and dashes, and the tradition of Adoni, pronounced differently than Adonai, then it appears to me, as a Trinitarian Christian, that you're banking a lot of your theology on human tradition. Albeit it is the Word of God, so don't get me wrong there, it is God's Word that was preserved by the Holy Spirit, that was utilized by human tradition, and there's nothing inherently wrong with that, but I mean the rest of the Bible is also written by humans, Right? Maybe, except for the 10 words that were chiseled by God Himself or spoken by God Himself, and Moses chiseled them down or written down by the finger of God the first time, and then Moses had to write the second version but you guys get the point god spoke and spoke to an inspired human authors to pin the words of the bible and it's trustable it's reliable so don't hear me arguing against that i recognize that i affirm the authority of god's word as has been transmitted by god's very spirit to the human agents. But when we're talking about the Masoretic Tradition, and I'm saying this in closing, we're dealing with a phenomenon of words and phrases and dots and dashes that was purposely implemented by a group of people who are you ready for this? for the most part rejected the Incarnation and the mystery of God revealed in the person of the Divine Messiah Jesus. Are you catching that? That's the scope and the weight of my argument from a Trinitarian perspective that Biblical Unitarian doesn't either seem to grasp or isn't revealing to us in their explanation. God used human authors to transmit the text, but God also used human authors to reveal the Incarnation to us when Yeshua hit the scene. The the writers of the New Testament were experiential Trinitarians. They lived with Jesus here on earth and wrote about Him because they walked and talked with Him. And thus, their eyes were opened by the Spirit of God to not just who Jesus was as the Messiah... But we're also open to who Jesus was as the divine Son of God, God incarnate understanding the thrust of my important um, emphasis here at the end of my study. Why is that important to us and relevant to us? Because if Biblical Unitarian's explanation is more weighty, then it's almost to suggest that the non-Messianic version of Judaism's representation of the Bible is more important than the New Testament understanding and representation of the Bible you understand what I'm saying? Rabbinic Judaism rejects the New Testament, but they do hold to the Old Testament Tanakh. We Christians accept the New Testament, but we also accept the Old Testament Tanakh. What's the big difference between these two groups, Christianity and Rabbinic Judaism? Well obviously the difference is our acceptance or rejection of Jesus not just as Messiah, but as God veiled in flesh, God walking among us incarnate. So, Biblical Unitarian rejects the Incarnation, and rejects, therefore, the authoritative aspect that is brought to the table of discussion when God spoke to humans and caused them to transmit His words to other human beings and to preserve those words by the power of the Spirit. So that's what's at stake here on the table. And here's what adds insult to injury, and I'll say this in closing, we'll pick this up next week. What adds insult to injury when we look at the Biblical Unitarian explanation is the fact that these little dots and dashes that you're seeing on your screen right now, that Biblical Unitarian is banking a lot on, adoni versus Adonai because that's what the Masoretes vowel pointed it as, right? Different Difference in pointing and difference in pronunciation. pronunciation. These little dots and dashes came after the New Testament people, afterwards. That means when Yeshua and the apostles were reading their Tanakh, there weren't little dots and dashes. There was a Masoretic tradition of pronunciation, but little dots and dashes were still in question. There wasn't that, there wasn't anything there, which means it's entirely possible and probable that instead of reading Adoni, when it came to the Lord, the second Lord, that those Messianic readers, those Messianic Jews who read their Tanakh, Psalm 110, 110, verse 1, the Lord said to my Lord, they didn't read, Adonai said to Adonai, when they were reading the Greek, Kurios says to Kurios, I'm sorry, Adon- Adonai said to Adoni, or Yahweh said to Adoni, instead, with eyes open by faith, they read, Yahweh said to Adonai, or to use the Greek, Adonai said to Adonai, not Adonai said to Adoni, or Yahweh said to Adoni, or something like the like the uh, biblical Unitarians trying to suppose. So, that's really what's at stake here. I'm tipping my hand to you um, right up front. Next week, we'll uh, pick this up again and begin to, let me see where I want to um, discuss. I want to dive a little bit deeper into uh, into this Adoni and Adonai and show you how that they have the similar roots, and yet how uh, Strong's, when he put together his Bible, had to make sure to show representationally that Adonai and Adonai, from a tradition perspective, carried along differences in understanding as well. And So we'll begin to pick up some more of the um, uh, technicalities of this particular passage. But that'll do it for a Trinitarian response to biblical Unitarianism. Let's close in prayer. Abba, I bless your name. I'm thankful for the text. I'm thankful for the fact that you sent your Son into the world to reveal... The name of the father to to demonstrate his equality with the father and at the same time his self sufficiency as the son who is co-equal co-eternal and consubstantial with the father in a mis- in a mysterious way he came to uh reveal himself as the one sent by the father the agent of the father and yet at the same time somehow god the father became god the son in 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 a mysterious way god became flesh i don't know exactly how understand how that works and yet the father didn't lose his identity as a father and the son didn't usurp that the father is eternally the father and the son is eternally the son i suppose it's not really correct to say the father became the son scratch that it's that god divine, became a human right um, divinity took on humanity and so that's the mystery of the incarnation thank you lord for revealing yourself to us in this fashion because in this way we can begin to understand how you could identify with us uh most intimately by becoming one of us like the man with the birds uh poem that we the man of the birds i think it's called that was um a so long ago and um In this way, you could become the the perfect sacrifice and the mediator between God and and man, the man Christ Jesus. Only um, Yeshua can be the perfect mediator between God and man because he's both truly God and truly man. Only Yeshua can be the perfect sacrifice for humans because he himself was a human. And yet... He, without sin, is the perfect sacrifice because he's full deity. That's how he could be a perfect human. How else could he be sinless if he wasn't deity? Because the Bible teaches that all have sinned. None is righteous. No, not one. All have sinned and fall fall short of the glory of God, right? No one has has led a perfect sinless life other than the man jesus but how could that be unless he was truly divine as well as truly human thank you for this reality also lord i thank you or the eschatology study that we uh, embarked on earlier and the challenges and the truths that it presents continue to carry us along as students as teachers helping us to chart our way through these uh, topics um, relying on you Oh Holy Spirit because you are the one who is going to unlock the meaning of the text to us bring us back together next week uh, refreshed and ready to, to embark on this study once again it we'll would be careful to give the praise and glory but Yeshua Oh main.